why you get so anxious or angry or ashamed or afraid or why you get so depressed or discouraged or disillusioned or driven by ambition or apathy or why sometimes you just feel so empty. Do you know why it is that you struggle with the things you do, whether you struggle to be truthful or generous or compassionate or content? Do you know why? We like to think that we understand ourselves. The Ten Commandments take us deeper. Because the deeper you get into them, the deeper they get into you, the deeper the greatness of God's love gets into your heart, then the more you begin to understand who God is and the more you begin to understand who you really are. Yes, the Ten Commandments does all of that. Would you be willing to learn more? Uh, We're just looking at the first six verses this morning, but even that is like jumping into the deep end of a pool. The Ten Commandments are famously known as the law, God's law. Um, So let's see three things about God's law this morning, all right? We're going to see the role of the law, the unity of the law, and lastly, the fulfillment of the law, okay? The role the unity, and the fulfillment of the law, okay? First, the role of the law. And I want us to notice something, and really we say this every week, so in a way it kind of goes without saying, but it's really, really worth saying, because the first three verses show us the gospel. Some of you might say, wait a minute, this is the Old Testament, it's not the New Testament, that's right, but when you begin to understand what the gospel really is and learn to see it, you realize that the gospel is written on every page of the Bible. Let me show you. What's the first thing God says here? Does God, you know, does he just launch into this voluble outpouring of rules and regulations and commandments? No. The, the first commandment actually comes in verse 3. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. But before that, the first thing God actually says here is verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, before God ever tells the Israelites one thing to do, he says, I'm the God who already brought you out of slavery. I already saved you. You didn't contribute anything to this. I already did everything necessary to save you and to get you out of slavery in Egypt. You know what that is? That's the gospel. The gospel doesn't begin with rules about what we're supposed to do. It begins with news about what God has already done. That's the gospel. The the rules, the obedience, the, um, the commandments and all of that are not the condition for God to save us. It's the result of God saving us. The gospel does not say, obey God and then he will save you. The gospel says, God has already saved you, therefore you can now obey. Do you see how that works? Uh, But listen, I want to tell you, it's even deeper than that because God isn't just saying here, I've already saved you. He's saying, I've already loved you. Because what is the first thing God, how does God refer to himself? If you look in that verse two, how does God talk about himself? He says, I'm the Lord your God. Not the Lord God. There's that little word you're in there. I am the Lord your God. That's the language of love. It's the language of intimacy. Really, it's the language of romance. God is saying, I've already given myself to you. I'm your God. I belong to you. I've already given myself to you, and now I want you to give yourself to me. It's the language of love, and real love always wants to give itself away. 
So for instance, if you've ever fallen in love with someone, you know that one of the first things that happens is you, you just want to find out everything you possibly can about that person. You find that person endlessly fascinating. It's like you can't learn enough about them. But then once that happens, one of the next things that happens is as you begin to learn more about that person, you begin to make it your mission to, to give joy and delight to that person on the basis of what you know that they delight in. So you might say, here, I swept your kitchen today because I know how much you love a clean house. Or you might say, here, I bought you this book because I know how much you love this author. Or you may say, here, let me just hold your hand because I know that when you're discouraged, you just want somebody to be there for you and not even necessarily say anything. Real love always wants to give itself away. And, and the more you learn about this, the more you realize that, that, um, that you make it your mission, your mission in life to, to delight the person, to please the person that you've given yourself to. Real love always wants to give itself away. And by the way, that helps us understand verse 5, um, where God says, I'm a jealous God. A lot of us would look at that and say, yikes, you know, get me as far away from this God as possible. But that's because we read our experience of human jealousy into that statement. But there's a big difference between our jealousy and God's jealousy. Human jealousy is, is love that's totally focused on self. And, and when it doesn't get what it wants, it's love that turns into hate. But God's jealousy is love that's totally focused on the beloved. It always wants the best for beloved so that even when it gets angry, it, it never stops being love. So for instance, if you've ever had someone in your life that you care a lot about, um, but that person is hurting themselves, whether through addiction or poor relationship choices or some other kind of self-destructive behavior, you get angry, right? But your anger is an expression of love. Do you know what that is? You're jealous for that person. But you're not jealous for yourself. You're jealous for them because you can't bear to see that person hurting themselves. That's the kind of love that God is showing us here. He's saying, I am your God. I've already given myself to you. Now I want you to give yourself to me. You know what that does for you? That, that changes the, the role of obedience. It doesn't change the necessity of obedience. It does change the role of obedience. It changes the role of the law. Friends, the gospel is written on every single page of the Bible. And that means that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, uh, this is the big paradigm shift we all have to make. That because every, every page has the gospel written on it, even this one, right? The Ten Commandments. We would think if there's one place in the whole Bible where it really is all about rules and obedience and commandments, this would be the place. But, but we're seeing, no, God has already given himself to you. God is inviting you into an intimate, loving relationship with himself. And it's on the basis of that that he then gives us the law, the rules, the commandments. Those things are the result of God's love in our life, not the basis of it. Or we could put it like this. Really, the, the basic message of this whole chapter is simply this. You don't obey your way into God's love. God loves you into obedience. You don't obey your way into God's love 
God loves you into obedience. And when you see that love, you realize that that, that love, it, it changes the role of obedience in your life. It doesn't remove the necessity of obedience. It changes the role of obedience. It changes the law. And I'll tell you what, our hearts are hardwired against that. We, we, we want to do it the other way around. You know, the gospel says, relationship first, behavior second. That's the way, the order of the gospel. Relationship first, behavior second. We want to reverse those two things and put behavior first, relationship second. We, we always want to do that. It's like there's a, um, a bug, a virus that's... that's um, on the hard drive of every human heart that has corrupted the whole operating system. You know, like I said, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is the paradigm shift that we all have to make. But even if you're a Christian, this is true for you too, because the gospel is written on every page of the Bible. Why? Because even if you're a Christian, every time we turn the page, we forget the gospel. It's like a virus that's corrupted the whole operating system. We always want to put behavior first, relationship second. And the gospel is the exact opposite of that. By the way, this, is, um, this misunderstanding of the gospel is one of the big reasons that is at the heart of almost every major objection to Christianity. So for instance, um, take sex. Many people say, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because of what it says about sex. Why shouldn't I sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Why, why, why should I wait until I get married? Do you see what's happening? It's, that's behavior first, relationship second. You're saying that your relationship with this God is determined by some standard of, of behavior, of obedience that you don't agree with. That's behavior first, relationship second. You're saying, I can't be in relationship with this God because I don't agree with this standard of behavior. But God is saying, no, no, you don't obey your way into God's love. God loves you into obedience. Or take the hypocrisy of the church. Many people say, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because, well, Christians don't even obey what God says they should do. And listen, you know, that's an important objection. And if, if that's maybe your objection, there's a few things we really should say about that. And the first one is, God agrees with that. If you read through the Bible, the, God's voice is the first and the loudest voice. Whenever people are in line to, to criticize the church, God is always the first one in line to hold the church accountable. Secondly, our criticisms of the church are only possible because we use Christian categories to do it. So, for instance, why do people get so angry at Christians? Well, it's because Christians fail to uphold things like human rights or freedom, or equality, or dignity, or caring for the poor and the weak, or, or, or the uh, marginalized. The historians and philosophers are constantly pointing out that those values are only in our culture, they're only in our world because of Christianity in the first place, which means that you can't get rid of Christianity without getting rid of the very standards that you would use to get rid of Christianity. But thirdly and most importantly, uh, if, if your objection to Christianity is the hypocrisy of Christians, if you say, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because there are sinners in the church, don't you see? It's still putting behavior first, relationship second. Only in this case, you're saying, I can't be in a relationship with this God because of the behavior of these people. If you say that I don't need Jesus, I don't need Christianity, I don't need the church to be in relationship with this God, it's behavior first, 
relationship second because you believe that the way you get into a relationship with God is by being a good person. A misunderstanding of the gospel is so often at the heart of so many of our biggest objections to Christianity. Let me give you one more. Take suffering. Many people say, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because look at all the unjust suffering in the world. And I listen, we have to say right out front, that's a powerful objection. We should take that compassionately. We should take that seriously. But if that's you, if you say that, you know, a lot of the time, not all of the time, but a lot of the time, one of the big reasons we struggle so much with suffering in our lives is because of this idea that says, I've been a good person. I've lived a good life. Therefore, I don't deserve to have these things happen to me. Don't you see? It's still behavior first, relationship second. We're saying that, that my behavior, my um, circumstances of my life should be con- um, I mean, that God's relationship with me, his treatment of me should be conditioned by my behavior. Friends, the gospel undermines all of these objections by showing us that you don't obey your way into God's love. God loves you into obedience. It's not behavior first, relationship second. It's first, God invites you into a loving, intimate relationship with himself and then, and then you give yourself to him in that relationship, and then that changes the way you live. It doesn't remove the necessity for obedience. It does change the role of obedience. It changes the role of the law, and that's the first thing we see. But secondly, we see here the unity of the law, and here's what I mean. Um, we studied the book of James over the course of the summer, and there's a very interesting place in chapter 2, verse 10, where James says, if we keep the whole law but fail at just one point, we're accountable for the whole thing. In other words, if you break just one of the laws, it's like you've broken the whole law. Now, how can he say that? It's because of the unity of the law. What do I mean? Well, what's the first commandment? Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther was the founder of the great Protestant Reformation some 500 years ago. And uh, he was reflecting on the Ten Commandments. And Martin Luther points out that the Ten Commandments, they begin with our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. And it's only after that that they get into all the behavior of our lives. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't steal. All that other stuff. Martin Luther was reflecting on that, and he said, you know, the only reason we break all of the other commandments is because we broke the first one first. In other words, the only reason that you break the rule about lying or murder or stealing or adultery is because first you've broken your relationship with God. That's the unity of the law. It it shows us that ultimately the law is all about one thing, God and our relationship with God. Friends, the more you get into this, the more you see the law shows you how your heart works. And one of the first things it shows us is that you're designed for worship. Your heart is designed to worship something. You're designed to center your life around something. You're going to give yourself to something. So look at Once more, verse 3, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, notice that God assumes we're going to worship. He just assumes it. He doesn't say, if you worship, then you should probably worship me. He assumes that we're going to worship something. Now, listen, I understand. If you're not a Christian this morning, um, I, I can understand how you might find that objectionable. You might say, look, 
I don't worship anything. I'm not even a religious person. I don't even know if I believe in God. That's fair. But if that's you, then I want to invite you to consider um, the fact that worship is really just another way of something that we all are going to love something as ultimate. What do I mean by that? If you've been coming for a while, you've um, heard this before, so this is review for you, but it's important. If you're new here this morning, this is something we talk about quite a bit here. There are several different kinds of loves that we can all have in our life. At one level, there's what we could call superficial loves. Superficial loves are things like, oh, I love coffee, or I love video games, or I love music, or gardening, or the Cardinals. Um, there, there's room in our hearts for literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of superficial loves. But then we have what we could call significant loves. Significant loves are things like you love your spouse or your children or your parents or your home or your job or your community. Significant loves. There's only room in your heart for a handful of significant loves. So superficial loves, significant loves, but then there's what we could call your ultimate love. And friends, there's only room in your heart for one ultimate love, and everybody has one. You have one. Do you know what that is? Do you, you're going to worship something. You're going to give yourself to something. Do you know what it is? The Ten Commandments help you to find out because they show you how your heart works. In other words, you never break any of the other commandments without breaking the first one first. The reason that you lie or steal or murder or commit adultery is because at that moment in your life, something other than God is the ultimate love of your heart. So for instance, if you ever lie or if you're ever even tempted to shade the truth, why do you do that? Well, you could say it's because I broke that rule. Yeah, okay, you broke the rule, but why did you break the rule? Some people are tempted to shade the truth because they really care what other people think about them. They don't want to look bad. If that's the case, then that's showing you that your ultimate love really is approval. Other people are tempted to shade the truth or lie because they want to get power or because they want to have control over the circumstances or the people that are in their lives. Do you see how this works? Or what about murder? Is there anybody in here who's ever committed murder? Some of you are looking at me like, is this a trick question? You know, Jesus said that if you ever have contempt or ridicule, um, that you've already committed murder in your hearts, which means the good news is everybody in this room is already a murderer. Um, but so let's look at it. Do, do you ever have contempt? Do you ever have ridicule? Do you ever get murderously angry with people? Why is that? It's because at that moment, something other than God is the ultimate love in your life, and whatever it is, it's being threatened or it's being taken away from you. What is it? Do you know what it is? Is it approval? Maybe it's power. Maybe it's comfort or control or security. Something has, has a reign in your heart. Something is the ultimate love of your life, and at that moment, you're afraid it's going to be taken away from you, and you get angry. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. The, every time, every instance of moral disobedience in our life is not simply an opportunity to say, okay, yeah, I broke a rule. It's an opportunity to reflect, what other gods am I having before God? And really, the, one of the scary things about this is that in the Hebrew, literally what God is saying there, he's saying, you shall have no other gods before my face. That's literally what he says. 
That means that, that if you're ever worshiping um, some other God, if you're, if you're ever, ever making something other than God the ultimate love in your life, it's like an act of betrayal to God. It's like taking another lover. It's kind of like, I mean, this is a scary illustration, but it makes the point. It's kind of like if a married person takes a lover, an adulterous lover, and they bring that person home to sleep with them, and they bring them upstairs, and the spouse is gone, but the nightstand has a picture of the spouse on it. And that person might just put the picture down, face down, because they're thinking to themselves, I can't do this while my spouse is looking at me. I can't do it in their face. Friends, sin is, is rejecting God for some other lover, only we're doing it in his face. I want to invite you this week by way of application, to reflect this week when you are tempted to shade the truth, when you get angry, when you are tempted to cut corners, which is a form of stealing, when you are getting anxious or panicked or despondent or disillusioned, I want to invite you to reflect not just on the rule that you're breaking, but what is that showing you about what the ultimate love of your heart is? I want you to reflect, what is this showing me about how my heart works? What God do I really have in my life? What God am I really giving myself to? Because it's something. Is it approval? Is it power? Is it, is it control or comfort or security? It's something. Do you know what it is? That's the unity of the law, and that leads to our last point. We've seen the role of the law. We've seen the unity of the law. But lastly, we need to see the fulfillment of the law. Because here's where we're at. Uh, the role of the law shows us that God's overwhelming desire is to um, not to exact a certain code of, of behavioral compliance from you, but to invite you into an exclusive, binding, intimate, self-giving love relationship. And the unity of the law shows us that, that all of us resist that relationship because our hearts are already filled with all kinds of other little gods and little lovers that are constantly vying in competition with the real God. Which means, here's the big question. How do we make God more and more the deepest, truest, and most consistent love of our heart? And how do we give ourselves more deeply, more truly, and more consistently to God in a life of obedience? How do we do that? Or in other words, how, how are we able to say more and more to God, God, I see that you've given yourself to me, and now I want to give myself to you. I want to learn what pleases you, and I want to give, bring joy to your heart by just doing what pleases you. How do, how do we do that? You know, really, if you think about that, that's like a marriage. It's the most intimate, binding, exclusive, self-giving love relationship that you can possibly be in. It's like a marriage, but here's the question. How does that happen? You have to remember what God said here. I am your God. I have already saved you. I have already loved you. I've already given yourself, myself to you. And now I want you to give yourself to me. God is saying, you have to remember, God is saying, I've already given myself to you. Okay, now here's the question. It's one thing for God to say, I've given myself to you. But where do we see God doing that? Where do we see God giving himself to us? In Ephesians 5, um, the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the local church in Ephesus. And, and in that letter, in chapter 5, he was talking to them about marriage. And at one point he says, Husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. It's amazing, really. Paul is saying that even the very best 
earthly marriage is really nothing more than a dim reflection of the kind of love relationship that God wants to have with his people. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate bridegroom. And that Jesus Christ gave himself, he showed his love for for his bride by giving himself up for her. And the place that happened was on the cross. Because God is saying, look, I'm your God. I'm your God. And I want you to be able to say to me, my God, my God. The problem is we don't. We can't because there are already all these other little gods in our lives that we're always saying to, my God, my God. But on the cross, Jesus Christ said, my God. But Jesus Christ said, my God, not because he was experiencing God's love. He said it because he was losing God's love. Jesus Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Think about who Jesus is. He is the eternal son of God. Jesus Christ lived his whole life in perfect, binding, intimate, exclusive loyalty and devotion to God. Nobody was more faithful than Jesus. Jesus was always faithful. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the rejection that we deserve for our unfaithfulness so that we could experience the embrace that he deserves for his faithfulness. Because on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could cry out, my God, my God, why have you accepted me? Friends, the more you see Jesus doing that for you, the more you see Jesus giving himself up for you like that, the more that transforms your life because it melts your heart. The more you see Jesus giving himself like that to you, the infinite lengths that he would go to to make you his own, to give his life to you like that, the more you see that, the more you begin to experience the wonder of grace. It's the wonder of grace. What is that? You know what grace does for you? Grace puts a weight on your heart while taking the weight off of your shoulders. It puts a weight on your heart. And by the way, that's the antidote to the liberal permissive approach to God that says God just accepts everybody regardless of how they live. Grace puts a weight on your heart because when you see the the depths of how we've betrayed God by taking all kinds of other lovers into our life, but you also see the infinite lengths to which God has already gone in order to give himself to you, that, then all of a sudden you begin to say, God, you would do that for me? The, the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ, it puts a weight on your heart that makes you more and more want to obey him, not in order to get God's love, but because you see he's already given himself to you in, in intimate love. It's because Jesus Christ has bought you with his blood. The price he paid was his blood on the cross. And the more you see that, the more you see the gift of that, the more you realize that you can't just live however you want. To do so would be to trample on the gift. Grace puts a weight on your heart, but it also takes the weight off your shoulders. And that, by the way, is the antidote to the conservative fundamentalist approach that says, obey God or die. Because if the way into God's love is is you obeying and working and performing your way in, that means that you can never let up, you can never make a stake because the bar is too high. But if the way into God's love is God taking the penalty for your unfaithfulness, that means that your relationship with him is safe. It's totally secure. Your obedience didn't get you in. That means your failure can't kick you out. 
Grace puts a weight on your heart. You can't live however you want, but it takes the weight off your shoulders. Your obedience can't negate your relationship with God. It's one of the most amazing things the gospel does for you. Friends, you don't obey your way into God's love. God loves you into obedience. It's not behavior first, relationship second. It's first God invites you into the most intimate, binding, exclusive self-giving love relationship the world has ever seen, and then you give yourself to him, and that changes your life. I mean, don't you want to be in a love relationship like that? Don't you want a love like that in your life? That kind of self-giving love? I don't know if any of you would remember this. Um, many years, maybe even decades now um, ago, there was a Ken Burns documentary about the Civil War very famous. And one of the most famous parts in the documentary was there was this love letter written by um, Major Sullivan Ballou, and he wrote a love letter to his wife, Sarah. He wrote it um, a week before the first battle of Bull Run, which was one of the bloodiest battles in the Civil War. And Sullivan Ballou actually lost his life during that battle, and he no doubt had a premonition that he was very likely going to die in that battle. And so he wrote this love letter to his wife. And when they read it on the documentary, um, people went crazy over this thing. I mean, decades before the internet and before social media, this love letter went viral. Why? Let me read just a little bit of it to you. He says, Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me to you with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. The memories of the blissful moments I have spent with you come creeping over me. And I feel most gratified to God and to you that I have enjoyed them so long. And hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when, God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and seen our sons grow up. My dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you. And when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. And if there be a soft breeze on your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air fans your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think that I am gone and wait for thee, for we shall meet again. I don't care who you are. Everybody longs for a love like that. Everybody longs to be loved like that, to, to have somebody give themselves to them like that. God is inviting you into the most intimate, binding, personal, intimate love relationship the world has ever seen. Don't you want a love like that? Don't you want a relationship with God like that? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. He's already given himself to you. Now you give yourself to him. Let's pray.